So today I'm going to talk about um, two different paths, if you like, towards uh, realization of our true nature. Um, the first one is uh, what a lot of teachings these days refer to as the progressive path, and the other teaching is the direct path. Both the direct path and the uh, progressive path are found in Buddhism. And the direct path is also found in other non-dual traditions, such as Advaita and Sufism. The progressive path has primarily been handed down to us in the form of mindfulness meditation. And in the West, we inherited mindfulness meditation primarily from the Burmese and Thai traditions, uh, especially the Burmese tradition. There's uh, two very famous Burmese teachers, Mahasi Saidor and uh, Upandita, who taught a, a Vipassana where the emphasis was uh, focusing on the abdomen. And also many of you would be familiar with Goenka, who taught mindfulness by focusing on the nostrils. We also have um, in the West, the uh, (coughs) Buddhist mindfulness has also been popularized in secular mindfulness which takes um, a number of forms such as mindfulness-based stress reduction, mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, and mindful self-compassion. In a number of Buddhist schools, um, mindfulness is a introductory or intermediate practice prior to the direct path, but the direct path um, can also be entered into without necessarily training in mindfulness. Many Zen teachings refer to the direct path. And in contemporary Zen you also get mindfulness plus the direct path as well. So Thich Nhat Hanh taught a lot of mindfulness practice. And someone like Suzuki Roshi, who wrote a book called Beginner's Mind, a beginner's mind is what refers to the direct path. Sometimes um, mindfulness uh, is also uh, referred to as the direct path as effortless mindfulness. So, the mindfulness practice we inherit primarily comes through the Theravada tradition, where it's a progressive program. It's kind of taught instrumentally as a path towards uh, liberation or enlightenment as being the end goal. And it's arrived at through progressive stages. Similarly, um, in the secular teaching of mindfulness, 
it's also uh, an instrumental teaching in the sense that the end goal is often the relief of some kind of suffering, may it be stress, anxiety, or depression, or shame, whatever it may be. And uh, in both the religious and secular mindfulness, um, a lot of the emphasis upon, is upon cultivating states of mind, cultivating helpful states of mind as opposed to unhelpful states of mind. States of mind which lead to the, uh, in the religious tradition, realization of reality, or nibbana, and in the secular path to the realization of a greater sense of well-being. And mindfulness is an excellent practice and good introduction. And most of us have come into meditation through mindfulness over the past 20, 30 years. Also, um, because when taught in this way, uh, mindfulness can be taught as a skill. And uh, in a secular culture, then that becomes a... Uh, a sense in which one learns various skills which then can be manualized and then evaluated as an outcome. Hence the scientific studies of mindfulness. In contrast to that, in the religious mindfulness practice, there's a tendency to which almost like there's a sense in which we need to purify ourselves in some way. And hence the cultivating of various states of mind through mindfulness practice or through loving-kindness practice as a form of purification. Whereas in the direct path in Zen or in Mahayana Buddhism it's known as the Prajnaparamita teachings, wisdom beyond wisdom teachings were in which nirvana and samsara are identical. Um, that which we are seeking to realize, we already are. Hence, the transcendence of both the duality of purification and impurity. We already are inherently awake from the perspective of Prajnaparamita. And any, any feelings or thoughts which arise are not separate from that innate awareness or wisdom. In the mindfulness practice, uh, there's a, a great deal of emphasis placed upon this notion of progression. And uh, so in the traditional Burmese teachings, uh, there are a number of um, conditions or factors that we are trained in um, faith, effort, mindfulness and concentration uh, leading to wisdom or the insight into the three factors or the three conditions of existence being impermanence, suffering and, and no self. So mindfulness in this sense is usually referred to as a sense of focusing on an object. And uh, traditionally in Vipassana practice you will take an object, usually the breath, and uh, 
and that the, uh, the, the, the effort is made to continuously return to that particular object. So if it was the abdomen, then you exclusively focus your attention on the abdomen and you keep returning there and returning there. In that sense, the mind becomes purified and concentration builds because uh, concentration being the sense of maintaining that continuously throughout the day. We have to remember that this kind of practice, this kind of mindfulness training came primarily from a monastic tradition. And in the Burmese and uh, Thai monastic traditions, monks were primarily educators who lived in the monastery, even to this day it's still the same, so they would go out with their begging bowls for the food and the surrounding farmers would provide the food for them. So um, they had a lot of time to sit and um, whereas in the Zen Buddhism, when Buddhism arrived in China, the monastics did their own gardening and, and took care of their own needs in terms of food. And uh, many Zen teachers also, uh, even in the classical times, would go out and speak to the farmers and, uh, and they, they taught a direct path which was a lot more easily accessible, such as the teacher Bankei or Basui, who uh, taught Zen to lay people. And that kind of Zen that didn't require hours and hours of rigorous sitting, as is often the case in the passionate practice. So when we move into the direct path, I'm just going to read you a little story which some of you have probably heard. For years, Nazarudin herded donkeys carrying baskets of various items back and forth across the border with the neighboring kingdom. The border guards suspected he was smuggling something, but despite their concerted searches, they could never find anything. After he retired, Nazarudin moved to a distant city and one day ran across one of the border guards at a roadside cafe. Nazrudin, the guard, greeted him. What a surprise. After chatting for a few minutes, the guard couldn't help asking the question he'd been harboring for so many years. Tell me, what were you smuggling? Ah, uh, replied Nazrudin, sipping his tea. I was smuggling donkeys. So, uh, in the direct path, it's, it's not so much a process of um, rigorous hours and hours of sitting, but more a question of what is it we're not seeing, what is it we're not noticing, that which is so obvious right in front of our noses all the time. Um, there are a number of other Zen stories which point to this, which are very good. Um, there was a, uh, a, a two very famous teachers. The first one, uh, Nan Yue, who was the successor to the sixth ancestor. And um, 
There was a very famous, I've, I've read this one to you before, interaction between Nan Yui and a, 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 a novice monk at the time called Matsu, who was destined to become another very famous teacher. So Nan Yui uh, knew that uh, Matsu was a great vessel for the Dharma and once walked up to him and said, what does your worthiness intend to do by sitting in meditation? And Matsu said, I intend to become a Buddha. Nan Yui then picked up a piece of tile from the ground and began grinding it on a rock. Matsu said, what are you trying to make by grinding that? And Nan Yu said, I'm grinding it to make a mirror. Matsu said, how can you make a mirror by grinding a tile on a rock? And Nan Yu said, if you can't make a mirror by grinding a tile on a rock, how can you become a Buddha by sitting in meditation? Matsu said, well, what is the correct way? Nan Yu said, well, it can be compared to an ox pulling a cart. If the cart doesn't move, do you strike the cart or strike the ox? In Chinese literature, the ox is often a symbol of enlightenment. Matsu didn't answer. Nan Yui then said, Are you sitting in order to practice Zen, or are you sitting to be a Buddha? If you are sitting to practice Zen, then know that Zen is not found in sitting or lying down. If you're sitting to become a Buddha, then know that Buddha has no fixed form. With respect to the constantly changing world, you should neither grasp it nor reject it. Okay, this is the constant theme in our practice, attachment and aversion, chasing after something or rejecting what is already here, grasping or rejecting. So with respect to the constantly changing world, you should neither grasp nor it nor reject it. If you sit to become a Buddha, you kill the Buddha. If you grasp sitting, if you grasp sitting form, then you have not reached the meaning. When Matsu heard this instruction, it was though he had drunk sweet nectar. He bowed and asked, How can one cultivate mind to be in accord with formless samadhi? formless samadhi, just being awareness that is not focused on or a particular object, unbounded awareness. Um, you know, mindfulness uh, comes from the word sati, uh, which could be translated as awareness, but it's often a sense in which the attention is directed to an object all the time in mindfulness practice. Nanyui said, you are studying the Dharma gate of mind ground. And the activity is like planting seeds there. So the sense in which is this ordinary mind, this awareness, this body awareness that we are, is the ground of being, is the mind ground from which everything else originates. You are studying the Dharma gate of mind ground, and the activity is like planting seeds there. So when we're resting in our awareness, when we're familiarizing or becoming intimate with this awareness that we already are, we're planting the seeds in the sense we, we're becoming, we're familiarizing ourselves with it. It's not something we can do by thinking or even understanding, although sometimes intellectual understanding does help, but it's really about direct experiencing. The essential Dharma of which I speak 
may be likened to the rain that falls upon the seeded ground. See, there's this sense of rain falling, is just this sense of effortlessness. You don't have to do anything. We already are here. It's um, as simple as rain falling. And um, in this same manner, your auspicious karmic conditions will allow you to perceive the way. Matsu then asks, the way is without color or form. So our awareness in that sense is empty of color or form. Form and color arises within awareness. If the way is without color or form, is if, if our essential awareness is without color or form, he says, well, how can you perceive it? How can you see it? Right? And you said, the Dharma eye of mind ground can perceive the true way. The formless samadhi is likewise perceived. In other words, that which knows our awareness, the knower, can also know itself, knowing, knowing itself. Matsu then asks, does it have good or bad or not? And Nanyui said, if the way is seen in the aggregation and disintegration of good and bad, then it is not the way. How can the way have any good or bad in it when it's totally beyond conceptual thought, right? So, listen to this verse. The mind ground fully sown, when moisture comes, all seeds sprout. The formless flower of samadhi, how can it be bad or good? At these words, Matsu experienced great enlightenment and unsurpassed realization. He then served Nanyu for 10 years each day, embodying the deep mystery. Another very fam- famous koan you're probably familiar with being, what was your true face before your parents were born? What was your true face before your parents were born? So there's a sense in which this um, this body, this awareness that we're talking about here, this this timeless presence, this eternal presence, um, is something which isn't born or dies, unlike the, the coming and going of the sensations and perceptions and thoughts and feelings which are constantly arising. So this particular teaching, uh, in, there's different teachings in, in, in Tibetan Buddhism which are similar, and they go by different names, and you'll find them in Tibetan Buddhism. Uh, but in the Zen tradition, the particular, this particular practice is either taught as just sitting, um, in the Japanese word shikantaza, um, or, or, or um, as in some other traditions, as in Advaita, the inquiry practice, which in Zen takes the form of koans. So in a koan, like if you were given the koan um, about uh, what was your true face before your parents were born, you would sit with that question and inquire into it, similar to other traditions. So in the, in the uh, meditation practice of, of just sitting, it's, it's not instrumental, it's not a means to an end. We've already arrived at the end, so there's nowhere to get to. Um, 
meditation in this particular teaching is who we are. It's not something we do. It's, it's really recognizing who we are. You know, the usual metaphor of the blue sky and the clouds and, or the sun being the, the awareness that we are that gets blocked out by the, by the conditions and, and we get caught up in the conditions or attached with the various thoughts and feelings which block the sun and we don't recognize the sun, the awareness that we are, which is always shining, it's always here. And um, so when you listen carefully and uh, you perceive this, the knower perceives the known, the knower, um, you, you, you see clearly there's, there's no time present there. You, know? you see clearly that it's the, our mind or culture that creates the narrative of time. Awareness itself does not exist in time. Our body does not exist in time. So there's a sense in which there's this sense of everything in awareness is totally complete. There's nothing to do, nowhere to go. There's no right or wrong. It's just our ordinary mind, just this nothing special. That's our natural state. It's not something we have to attain. And this is the direct path. When awareness is unbound and untangled with our emotion thought, or the volitional tendencies, which we, uh, it's inherently free. It's our ordinary mind, nothing special. But why do we lose this space, or why is it so hard? Well, it's so hard to grasp, obviously, because it's so obvious, and it's so uh, simple. And we just look, look it, it gets looked over, it gets, doesn't get paid attention to, nobody teaches about it at school, our parents don't know about it, our culture doesn't value it. It just gets looked over, it doesn't, it's, uh, it's the jewel within which is never recognized. And uh, so, but uh, it's a gradual process in the sense in which it's direct, it's right here, right now, but the sense in which may, it's just like uh, living from that place, living from that awareness, um, we tend to oscillate a lot. So sometimes we might drop into it and you know, there'll be a gap in our thought and we'll forget it, we'll just be there, we'll be the awareness. And then we'll get attached to a thought or emotion again and we're gone into that. And then we come back to it again. So it's kind of like a sense of oscillation between the two. But the more in which we uh, plant those seeds, the more in which we become more intimate and familiar with it, you know, we come back to it. Then something triggers us again, we're back into our separate self, some trauma from the past comes up, etc. But our awakened awareness itself remains undisturbed and unchanging throughout all of that. And the only thing that waxes and wanes in that sense is the clarity of our recognition of our true self. Just as the view of the sun changes with the movement of clouds. It's a quote from Bodhi. So sometimes I think in terms of we have three bodies in a sense. Um, the first body, if you like, is uh, the body, our physical body and the body of the world. And we experience that through our sensations and perceptions. And the body of us, the body, our physical body and the world body, they're constantly changing. They're impermanent, transitory. And the other body, if you like, is the sense of the karmic body. It's kind of like the, the conditions or volitional tendencies, emotional reactions, mental reactions, that are constantly coming up in our lives all the time. 
These can also be passed down intergenerationally from one generation to the next. We also inherit it from our culture. And these volitional tendencies are always coming up all the time. And then the third body, in the sense, is the, is the universal body of Buddha, in the sense of the Dhammakaya, um, the spiritual body, if you like, the eternal body. Um, and that's the body we experience as our ordinary mind, always inherently free, peaceful and joyful. So I'll finish there. We don't have any time for questions and answers today. So we'll just go into the, uh, finish with the practice principles.